This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNXRadio.com studios in L.A. Charles is out today, but we're still going to bring you the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. Doctors have been studying whether blood plasma from recovered patients can help treat current patients. The idea is the antibodies in the plasma can give a person's immune system a boost. But after the urging from people like Dr. Fauci, the FDA has put on hold the possible emergency approval of the treatment. So we'll get into what that means. One of the things that made the virus so tough to treat early on was that doctors didn't know that much about it. But now they know a lot more. The outcomes are better. Virus hindering the firefighting efforts in California, though. One of the big problems, prison outbreaks. We'll explain that link. And apparently people have too much time on their hands, so much so that raising chickens has become a thing. First, though, the blood plasma. UC San Francisco infectious disease specialist Dr. Peter Chin Hong talked to KCBS's Stan Bunger in San Francisco about what the FDA's decision means for fighting the virus. We're not putting a hold on using it. It's just a call for more data. I think uh, folks at the top were burned by the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. And we know the rest of that story. The trials really haven't held up showing that that drug is worth anything. So I think it's just really a call for data. We're still using it under an expanded access protocol. And I think what it means for us on the ground is that I want the federal government to sponsor randomized control trials on a large scale uh, to enable us to to, uh, evaluate its use. So how has uh, the plasma, the the antibody-rich plasma, been used? This is called convalescent plasma. Yeah, so when we think about treating the sickest patients with COVID, we think about uh, stopping virus production and we think about taming inflammation. So convalescent plasma acts in the stopping the virus production by almost acting like a virus stun gun. Uh, And in that way, we've had a long history in infectious diseases of using plasma. So that's why there was enthusiasm to using it in COVID-19. And this is uh, in line with the use of this sort of plasma in other diseases over the years many times, right? Totally. So we've used it in polio. We've used it in influenza. We've used it in SARS. I mean, the list is actually uh, not short uh, in terms of the number of uses that infectious diseases uh, individuals have uh, utilized the power of convalescent plasma. How much of the plasma is out there? Is there a, a problem with supply? Were this to suddenly become uh, an available and, and simple uh, process? Well, there's two sources of supply. The first is really, I think, the main source, which is community participation and community donation through the blood banks, like the American Red Cross. The second source is engineered through uh, companies uh, that pick the elite antibodies and manufacture them in a synthetic way. And then we are evaluating that in, a, in small-scale studies right now. And do we know yet how long after recovery from COVID-19 people still have these antibodies? So um, there's a difference between natural antibodies and sort of passive immunity, which is giving other people's antibodies. In general, we think they last about three months. 
Thank you. That's Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He is an infectious disease specialist. The entire medical scientific world focused on this virus might be the most studied disease in human history. And with that, progress has been made quickly in treating patients. That's led to better results, lives saved. Dr. Sophia Thomas, president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, she talked to John Little from KRLD in Dallas about the progress. You know, we've come a long way in our healthcare system um, in our ability to to care for patients with COVID, to get them um, into the office. Um, overall, things are much improved as far as our ability to um, uh, diagnose, test, and, and, and treat. Um, and, and what's very interesting is the vast majority of nurse practitioner practices also um, are now able to bring patients in for non-COVID-related in-person care. And what's what's so important is throughout COVID, um, uh, really those routine preventive health care services have um, gone to the wayside. People have been afraid to go into their medical practices for routine care. Offices are opening back up now and um, allowing in-person related care, which is so vitally important right now. Still, one of the toughest parts of caring for somebody with COVID-19 is just the initial diagnosis and making sure you get those test results back as soon as possible. And again, about 80% of NPs are saying that remains. Absolutely. So that is the biggest challenge with COVID-19 is the ability for us to get the test back in a timely manner. As you know, the nasal swab is the gold standard for COVID-19 testing. And some offices are reporting, and I can personally report in my own office, I got test results back this week that I had done a month ago. You know, we'd like to see a turnaround of two to three days, but some of those test results are delayed. And the problem with that is that when you test a patient for COVID-19, if you don't get that positive result back in a timely manner, that patient really doesn't have that reinforcement of the positive test to confirm that they do, in fact, need to isolate and uh, quarantine themselves to prevent the spread of the disease. Really, the message is that anybody who is getting a COVID-19 test needs to just plan on quarantining themselves for 14 days, regardless of the test result. If you've been exposed it's just important to quarantine. What are the standard treatments right now for a presumed case of COVID-19? Well, the most important thing that we're watching is their ability to um, speak without having shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is is one of the main things that we get concerned about, their blood oxygen level dropping down. A lot of patients have actually purchased uh, home pulse oximeters and they're monitoring their oxygen at home, which is a great tool to have. That's probably the most important thing we're monitoring, their ability to go about in their day-to-day lives without severe respiratory problems. And so when we test a patient, we have them go home, monitor their fever, uh, encourage plenty of fluids, plenty of vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and lots of rest. But probably the most important thing is just the quarantining and self-isolating to prevent the spread of infection to the other people that live in their home. The virus putting a strain on firefighting efforts in this state, in California, turns out because there's been so many outbreaks in prisons. Firefighting agencies are having a tough time using inmate firefighters which are actually quite helpful every fire season. So what do they do now? Daniel Berlant is Assistant Deputy Director for Planning and Risk Analysis at CAL FIRE. I talked to him along with my uh, colleague Chris Seedon. So, Daniel, this shows how much we depend on inmates when it comes to fighting these fires, doesn't it? 
Yeah, you know, like everybody, COVID-19 has continued to impact us. We've had to uh, shift uh, shift our strategies, uh, continue to expand our planning efforts to make sure that we have enough firefighters uh, and that we reduce uh, the spread amongst uh, ourselves. But in our inmate uh, hand crew population, these are individuals that are uh, low-risk uh, inmates. They live in uh, close quarters with each other, and so they're obviously at a higher uh, susceptibility to the spread of COVID-19. And so we have a number of our inmate hand crews uh, that we've put out of service as they are quarantined. Now, going into this fire season and, and knowing these impacts uh, by COVID, uh, G- Governor Newsom actually increased the number of seasonal firefighter positions that we have available, adding uh, an additional over 800 additional firefighters to assist us so that we have more uh, crews to make up for uh, the inmate hand crews uh, that, again, are quarantined. Well, well, tell us a little bit about the process of getting these inmate hand crews on the fire lines. I take it these are people chosen well in advance by the by the prisons. Talk to us a little bit about the coordination that goes on between fire and, and the, the, the prisons. Yeah, our inmate hand, uh, inmate hand crew um, uh, program has been in existence since the 1930s. It is a, a long-established program where we take, uh, again, low-risk uh, inmates. Uh, we train them up as firefighters. Uh, we form crews, which means up to 15 members uh, in a crew, and they go out and they help us fight fires. They build containment lines uh, around the fires. And so it's a, it's a large amount of people being the fact that they're, again, in a crew uh, of about 15. Um, but we do have other crews in the state. Uh, many uh, agencies, uh, including the U.S. Forest Service, have career firefighter positions. We often refer to those as hot shots. As I mentioned, we've taken a lot of our seasonal firefighters. We've even called onto the CCC and been able to add additional crews that are non-inmates to kind of ensure that we have enough resources to to help us respond to these fires. And with uh, over 11,000 lightning strikes in the last several days, several hundred new fires, every obviously every crew that we can uh, is being put to work. So you need the manpower, but you also need equipment. Is that coming in from other states? And give people here an idea of just how bad it is up there in Northern California. I mean, some of these spots where the lightning is hit don't usually burn, and there are tens and thousands of acres that are burning right now. Yeah, absolutely. Many of these fires have grown uh, over 100,000 acres. Uh, You know, these are the size of small cities. Uh, And so we've uh, been really tapping local fire departments, uh, moving our CAL FIRE resources, our federal resources from across the state. Uh, But we've also called upon other states. We have, in fact, uh, 375 fire engines from other states coming into California to help us. We've activated the National Guard. Uh, They have helicopters. They have uh, 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 guard members that are forming into crews as well to assist us. So when you start to add in the CAL FIRE resources, the federal resources, the National Guard resources, other state resources, we have a lot of equipment. But, again, we have so many fires, and these fires are so large that it takes a lot of people, takes a lot of equipment to battle these fires. And we also need to start thinking ahead. We've got probably several weeks. Uh, that we'll be fighting these fires, and so we need to be able to give the firefighters that were on the initial attack of these fires a break. They need to have uh, some rest. Many of them have been working three days straight, and so the fresh crews coming out from out of state, the National Guard crews, all of this will help us sustain uh, what could be a very busy fire season. We thank him for the job they're doing. Daniel Berlant, Assistant Deputy Director, Planning Risk Analysis at CAL FIRE. Some people are bored, like really, really bored. There's not too much to do these days. They're stuck at home, right? Whatever the reason, more people now raising chickens. It's not like having a cat or a dog. There's a lot of work involved, diseases to watch out for. Carol McKenzie from KYW in Philadelphia talked to bird health expert Dr. Cheryl Davidson at Penn Vets about how to properly care 
for chickens? There really are no regulations on backyard uh, farming. We do not know how many people have backyard groups of birds, um, so it fluctuates uh, greatly. So there are no regulations on that. There are regulations for larger flocks, and those regulations are through the various state departments of agriculture and through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But for smaller groups of birds, there are no um, true state regulations. There may be regulations related to your locale, so your township or your city, whether you can keep backyard birds. And you, and as a new owner, you need to reach out to uh, those uh, local officials and ask what those regulations are. Some allow uh, birds in, in the townships and the cities, but will only allow a certain number of birds. Some will indicate you have to have a certain size property before you can keep poultry. And many places do not allow roosters um, because of noise regulations. So you really do need to reach out to the certain locales. But in general, there are no state type of regulations uh, for backyard poultry. You said you've been getting an increase in calls uh, from people with backyard flocks. Can you tell us what are people asking? Are they reporting illnesses or, or why are they contacting you for the most part? For the most part, they are contacting me because the birds are sick. And there are some that have had flocks for a while and the birds have gotten ill. There are some that are new poultry owners and they've gotten ill and they don't know how to handle the situation. I have a friend who has a backyard coop and she leaves hers out on the counter because she said they're fresh. You can do that. But that's a no-no. In, in my mind and in my experience um, and in my opinion, I believe that um, should not be done. And you will see people do that. And you'll see on the Internet that people say, yes, you can leave your eggs out. I would advise against that, leaving your eggs out on the counter. And, and I would advise uh, refrigerating those eggs. And also it looks like no sunny side up, huh? Um <laughs> Yeah, that, that again is a, a difference of a, a <laughs> yes. opinion uh, with that. So, yes, you'll see the CDC and, and, and USDA and all saying you, you need to cook your eggs to um, a hard-cooked type of egg and, and all. Um, again, not all eggs have the salmonella. So um, it is important to understand what your medical history is. If you're an immunosuppressed patient, et cetera, you, you probably want to cook your eggs um, so they're, they're hard scrambled. Otherwise, other people, and, and I have some eggs sunny side up or light over easy, but you, you need to take some care too and understand what your own medical history is and, and consult with your physician as to any risks that they believe you have um, based on your, your medical history. So there is some debate about that also. Okay. Can we talk just a little bit now about people who might just be getting into this, backyard chickens, or who are thinking about it, what, what's the first thing they need to consider, you know, if they're thinking about uh, getting having raising chickens in their backyard? Well, first, you need to reach out to somebody um, such as your local veterinarian or a poultry specialist like myself or an extension poultry specialist so you understand what you need to do with respect to housing and bedding and biosecurity and feed. Many of the owners that I've spoken to recently, and these would be the new owners, 
did not understand what they needed to do with respect to housing and the housing, especially to protect their birds from the predators, whether it would be the hawks or the fox or the raccoons. Um, And they didn't understand also how much time and effort it does take to keep the coop clean, to keep the area clean and dry. And that's key not only for bacteria such as salmonella, but for other diseases of poultry. It is very important to keep things clean and dry. Otherwise, diseases can build up and cause disease in your birds. So many of these new owners didn't understand um, what to do to maintain a safe environment for their bird and also how to maintain that clean environment for the bird. And also, as we just spoke about before, didn't understand maybe the local regulations about keeping birds. So I really encourage people to reach out um, to either a local veterinarian myself, such as a poultry specialist or one of the extension poultry specialists, to get this background information so they understand what they need to do to protect their birds. Dr. Davison, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. If you're listening to this at home, maybe a shirt, sweatpants kind of thing, you know, comfortable clothes, at least you're wearing something, right? But uh, what you're not wearing anymore, designer jeans and shirts. It's really hurting the fashion industry, which is taking a big hit. Now the people don't need to dress up as much. Jefferson University Fashion Design Program Director Farai Samoy talks to Charlotte Reese from KYW in Philadelphia about how the virus has changed the fashion industry. There are so many layers of the fashion industry, and I think everyone is being affected in their own way. So even if we break it down to textiles and fabric mills and cotton mills, they're being affected because, you know, you need people out in the workforce, you know, milling. And usually these are in large factories, so there's a lot of people in one space. So that sort of had a moment of being shut down And then also the people that are in the factories that are actually like creating and sewing the clothing together, that's being affected. I mean, there's factories where there's thousands of people in one open air space and that's just not happening. And then that also goes to designers that are trying to acquire fabric in terms of like logistics and travel and shipments. It's really hard for people to get products into the U.S., especially because a lot of fabrics do come from China and do come from overseas. There aren't that many fabric mills that are based in the U.S., so that's been halted. And then it also affects the retail aspect and trying to, you know, keep up with stock. Um, Designers are just not creating any more product right now because it's not, you know, there's not that much value there. So retailers are being affected actually on both ends from the design component and from the consumer because the designers are not creating as much product. And then also the consumer is not even able to leave their homes to go purchase and shop product. So there's so many different avenues and everybody is definitely being affected in different ways. Yeah. And you mentioned retailers, and I think that's probably the most recognizable thing for people right now, because, you know, we're seeing JCPenney, Crew, big companies like that filing for bankruptcy. And others are laying off a lot of employees. I mean, was all of this because of the pandemic or has this kind of been a long time coming? I think it's a mixture of both. I think the consumer is starting to become more conscious about things that they want to purchase or where they want their money to 
to be spent. So I've sort of seen it coming. And I think COVID was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Retailers are just realizing that they cannot function in the same capacity that they were functioning before. And I think it's Honestly, I think it's a good thing because it's forcing the industry as a whole to sort of pause and reset and figure out, you know, why did I build this company in the first place and what is my position? Where do I stand and where where's the future of this company that I built? I mean, there's so many people now even working from home, so people are kind of more focused on sweatpants than heels right now. I mean, do you see that becoming a a problem? People aren't thinking about nice clothes right now. I mean, is that is that an issue, do you think? Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I think it's now opening an avenue for more brands to start expanding into loungewear. I've already seen that. We can even take it to Kim Kardashian's new line. She started like a more like cozy loungewear that you can wear at home. And every time that she posts something online, like a new product, it literally sells out in minutes. So I think there's a new avenues for brands to sort of reconfigure and figure out ways that they can acquire that. So I don't think it's all lost. I just think as a brand, let's put a pause on designing evening wear, obviously, because nobody's going anywhere. But look into doing more things that are loungewear and also things that are, you know, ethical and sustainable. I think because we're sitting at home a lot, too, we want things that are cozy, comfortable, you know, feels good on the skin, non-toxic. So I think there's an opening there for some brands to start to venture into new spaces. Yeah, yeah, lots of new spaces. And you've already mentioned some positives, but is there any others that you're seeing in the fashion industry? Just I've noticed myself, I'm telling people, hey, nice mask. I mean, is that like the future of fashion? Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny. So many companies have attested their business to surviving simply because of mask sales. I mean, you're buying a mask for your whole entire family, and now it's not even cool just to have one mask. You literally have to have a mask for every outfit. For example, me, I've got like a mask that can kind of go with everything. I have my simple black mask, my colorful mask. So every day I'm literally rotating. So I think it's it's the new way, and I've even seen some fun masks with like diamonds encrusted on it. Like if you want to go high end, I know like Chanel and Balenciaga, they're all making masks all the way down to, you know, budget companies like Walmart that are making $2 masks. So it's really a space that anyone anywhere can find a mask that they can afford. So it's really interesting to start seeing that as being part of the the common fashion thread. Thank you so much, Fry, for talking with me today about the fashion industry and the future. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It was such a pleasure. Lots of people avoiding airplanes since all this got started so bad. We had an airline industry analyst on this podcast recently talking about the $21 round-trip flights. They just want you to come. Please buy a ticket. Bottom line, people don't want to catch the virus sitting in a tube close to a bunch of other people. Masks or no masks. But what are the chances of actually getting infected on a flight? Some experts say... It's pretty slim. They point to very few documented cases of in-flight transmission. There was a flight from the U.S. to Taiwan, 12 symptomatic passengers at the time. The rest of the more than 300 people on board tested negative, though, including the crew. 
One explanation for the apparently low risk level is that the air in the modern cabins replaced with new fresh air every two, maybe three minutes, and most planes are fitted with air filters designed to trap 99.99% of particles. Thanks for listening to us. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.